I believe people make assumptions uh, because I'm a woman that potentially I don't have much to say or I don't I wouldn't be able to make the right decision. I think the one that that frustrates me the most is when someone meets me, their first comment is, oh, what do you do? Are you the dietitian? And that is, it, it's fine once, twice, but after about the 30th time, it, it starts to get to you. Or the other one is the, the masseuse. And look, that's nothing against dietitians or, or masseuses, but it's never, oh, are you the head of performance? to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. Firstly, I do feel better than I sound. A chest infection has taken me down these last few weeks, but I'm delighted to get Carmen on this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. And if anyone wants to check out Carmen's LinkedIn profile, you'll see an incredible list of organizations over the last five or six years from the AIS in Australia to Brummies Rugby, Brisbane Broncos, Philadelphia 76ers and more recently with Perth Glory in Australian soccer, in Australian football. So what a journey over the last few years and it's it's exactly this journey that I want to speak to Carmen about but as well as that I want to have a little touch on some of the things that Carmen is passionate about and that's recovery and athlete monitoring and we dive into those two areas so recovery periodization recovery during congested uh, periods of fixtures which Carmen is very um, au fait with having worked in the NBA and then athlete monitoring so external load internal load how we actually combine these two uh, areas of athlete monitoring to, to make sense and and, um, and communicate to coaches as best way possible so a really interesting episode coming up this week with Carmen this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Rewire Fitness. Mental fitness is quickly becoming a hot topic in our industry, as we've found on recent episodes of the podcast. But what are you doing to develop the mental fitness of your athletes? Rewire Fitness is a mental fitness platform that helps athletes reach their full potential and avoid burnout by providing integrated tools to holistically improve readiness, recovery, and resilience. Their patented technology features protocols from neuroscience, psychology, physiology, and beyond providing a holistic approach to human performance. So Rewire has been backed by some of the biggest names in sport like Under Armour, who invested in their first investment round, and Kyle Cover, NBA All-Star who spent 17 seasons in the league. Make mental wellness and cognitive performance a priority amongst your athletes today. And to learn more, to set up a demo, head to rewirefitness.app forward slash Pacey. That's P-A-C-E-Y. And also sponsoring this episode is Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction for recovery? Hytro has developed the world's first BFR wearable, unlocking the recovery benefits of BFR to support athletes. BFR is no longer just for one-on-one physio or rehab. Hytro allows teams to use this safe and scalable sports BFR device post-exercise to dramatically enhance recovery. So whether in the changing room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hytro has created a simple and effective tool to allow BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously, safely and more conveniently than ever before. Check them out at hydro.com or email Warren on warren at hydro.com to find out how Hydro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Carmen. Carmen Colomer, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. 
Thanks so much, Rob. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. No, thank you for coming on. I had a little stalk of your LinkedIn just before we um, just before we came on and press record. It's been a quite a few, quite a, a, a unbelievable last few years for you, diving around the world, lots of different roles, lots of exciting organisations to work for. Yeah, I have um, definitely switched codes a few times and um, had a lot of experiences, which has been really great for my development and obviously um, been pretty pretty exciting as well. What was the sport that when you were coming through undergraduate, masters, etc., what was the sport that you wanted to work in? Look, I always liked rugby union. So growing up, my, my family's French. So we always followed um, France in the, in the World Cup and the Rugby World Cup. And um, in my undergrad, I, you know, when we had to design fake, fake research um, studies, I, I always used rugby union as an example. And then um, I was lucky enough in my master's to actually get a placement at the Melbourne Rebels uh, in the Super Rugby competition at the time. So pretty lucky with that. And PhD in rugby union as well. Is that right? That's right. So it's a complex systems analysis in uh, in rugby union. Which is, tell us a bit more. <laughs> so essentially it's looking at, <laughs> minor, um, so the idea of systems thinking. So basically how um, patterns evolve um, on the field. So I'm looking at tactical patterns, so how the players are moving. I managed to do a big data trade with uh, the other Australian teams and we swapped our data so that way we can look at the opposition as well because I think if you're thinking in systems, you need to think about what, what the opposition is doing as well. So looking at potentially um, attacker and defender dyads, so how the, the players are moving in relation to each other and then also in relation to the, the team itself. And um, so published my lit review and my first study in that, and I've just got two more two more studies to, to publish there, which is a little bit more analytical using some machine learning as well. And uh, hopefully still haven't gotten there yet with, the, with all the results, but hopefully some interesting insights into how players adapt their behavior in relation to um, the opposition, team strategy, and certain contextual factors such as uh, phase of play, uh, also, uh, the weather, how that can impact um, team team tactics as well, and and so on. Does that make it? Does it make it a little bit harder now that you're not working in rugby union? Or does that make no difference? Uh, to finish my PhD, you mean? Yeah. Uh, not not really. So I've already collected all my data. So I finished data collection back in twenty nineteen. So I still have all that data and I still um, very much enjoy watching Rugby Union. So still invested in that sense and still using a lot of the, the footage and the, the KPIs and so on that um, from that, that period there when I was with them. Um, so that was with the with Brumbies Rugby again in the Super Rugby competition at the time. Uh, so still closely linked um, with my time there. I've probably jumped past you. I mentioned your LinkedIn, but pretty jump past the uh, the intricacies of, of what's in there. Would you mind just giving us a bit of a brief background on on you, Carmen, if that's all right? Yeah, sure. So uh, started as a normal staff undergrad uh, when I was there, lucky enough to get an internship at the Victorian Institute of Sport. So uh, working in physiology, main sports there were cycling, swimming, and track and field, mostly with a with a swimming team which was a lot of early mornings, uh, a lot of Saturday mornings, five, five o'clock in the morning, chasing the coach up and down the pool, uh, but absolutely loved it. Worked with some great people there and learned so much. And then after that, started my master's high performance sport at ACU. And as I mentioned before, I was lucky enough to get, um, to do some of my master's research at the Melbourne Rebels. So I did an internship there and finished that in 2016. And then straight off the back of that, um, I managed to get a position at the Australian Institute of Sport as a postgraduate scholar. So it's a, it's a year long position working in physiology. Absolutely love my time there. Um, Canberra is a great place, a really good place for sport and um, just a great place to live as well. And uh, again, worked with some absolutely amazing people at Australian Institute of Sport. 
And then off the back of that, luckily enough and very conveniently, um, managed to secure a PhD at Brumbies Rugby, which was literally next door to the AAS. Uh, so I ended up staying in Canberra for another few years. Um, and that was under the guidance of Ben Sapel, uh, who's now actually at Geelong Cats. Uh, so he's still my supervisor and probably I would say uh, my mentor um, and has always been a, a really um, someone that I, I've looked up to and, and always go to for advice. So, and then in 2020, I was contacted um, by someone at the Brisbane Broncos, so Paul Devlin, who's had a performance at the time, and he asked if I was interested in a role there. Ben Sapel was um, supportive enough and then actually encouraged me to take the position and go part-time with my PhD. And so moved to Brisbane and that was probably about six weeks before COVID happened. So <laughs> it was off to a bit of a, a rocky start. Didn't get to experience Brisbane as much as I'd like to. But again, I loved my time at the Broncos. I, we didn't have a great year that year performance wise, but I think it's an excellent organization and just a really, really good, good group of players there. Um, and then after about a year, I had been working with um, a physio, Simon Rice, at the, the Brumbies, and he had managed to secure a position at the 76ers, and a position came up there for a director of sports science and uh, asked if I was interested. And initially, I, I wasn't too sure if I wanted to go because that's obviously quite a big move. Um, my partner was in Australia and so on. But then um, in the end, I said yes. So moved over to, to the US, um, that was still during COVID and did two seasons there at the 76ers. Uh, loved my time there. Uh, did want to stay in a, way, in a sense, uh, but also wanted to, to come home to be, to be close to my partner. And when I got home, um, not long after getting back, applied for a position at Perth Glory as the head of performance, thinking, oh, there's no way I'll get that. I mean, um, I've never had that, I've never held that position before. And, you know, there aren't many women heads of performances in the world, let alone in, in soccer. So, yeah, and then um, after a couple of interviews, uh, managed to, to get that. So I started that in July of this year. And, um, yeah, I've been here since. So I'm really interested to know, as always, and I don't want to, I think it's a really important question, but I don't want to make the discussion for the next 45 minutes all about this, but I'm always interested for, for girls working in, for women, women working in a male dominated industry like, like ours in high performance sport. And the, the, the surveys that I've done in UK football, in rugby union here in the UK and, and Oz and New Zealand and Ireland and Wales, it's pretty much a three or 4% um, uh, of of of, the, of high performance staff are females. So, what has it been like for you coming through that journey that you've just mentioned as a female, as a, as a woman in, in this in such a male dominated environment? Has it has there been any stories, good or bad, that's affected you along the way? Maybe I've been really lucky, but I don't feel like I've had many negative experiences or significantly negative experiences. There are certainly times where it is frustrating because I believe people make assumptions uh, because I'm a woman that potentially I don't have much to say or I don't, I wouldn't be able to make the right decision. I think the one that, that frustrates me the most is when someone meets me, their first comment is, oh, what do you do? Are you the dietitian? And that is, it, it's fine once, twice, but after about the 30th time, it, it starts to get to you. Or the other one is the, the masseuse. And look, that's nothing against dietitians or, or masseuses, but it's never, oh, are you the head of performance or are you the, you know, it's always just one of those two, I guess, stereotypically female dominated roles. I think uh, the other challenge is sometimes I feel like it helps to have a little bit more of a voice than maybe you need to. And that just helps to, to let people know that maybe you do have something to say. Whereas I feel like men don't need to make a point of that so often. I guess in terms of 
trivial uh, situations. You know, the the big one is always whenever you're in a stadium or an arena, just trying to find a female bathroom is probably one of the most frustrating things. I think in the the US it has gotten a lot better where they have uh, a lot more female coaching or coaching staff, uh, the whole change rooms and so on. Whereas in Australia, I, I think we're still catching up. And then the other trivial one is, you know, you, you're constantly just get, getting given male uh, training kit and it's always about three or four sizes too big. So, which, you know, if you shoe on the other foot, if there was a male working a female sport and you gave them an extra small women's pair of shorts, that probably wouldn't fly. So, and again, it's just, it's not something that, that really occurs to, to men in that, in that situation. But I, I must say, I'm just completely used to it now. And, and that said, there are some organized organizations that are a lot better than others and really, really do consider females. And I've worked at some excellent places where I've had really positive experiences and that's at the forefront of their mind of making female com- females comfortable in the workplace. And my, my last question on this before we dive into some of the, the, the technical, more technical stuff, what can organizations do? What can women do what can men do what can other performance practitioners do to increase that three or four percent which is what i've found across the board certainly in male sport anyway to get more women in these kind of positions that you've held or even just any high performance role and not dietitian and masseuse (laughs) that's a good it's a good question i think we were speaking offline before and i mentioned that I didn't have too many role models growing up and that's not because there weren't any, but that's maybe because there wasn't as much exposure and that could be because they didn't expose themselves enough or perhaps five, six, seven years ago, uh, social media wasn't as big as what it is now. So potentially it's, it's the women that need to advocate for it a little bit more and, you know, maybe pave the way in a sense to, to women who wanted to be in sport. But then I think also organizations can, but then it gets a bit tricky because you don't want to have preferential treatment for women, women getting positions over, over men. I think the position should be given to the, the ideal candidate uh, with the experience and the attitude and the aptitude. But uh, I think probably just inspiring women to, to pursue jobs would probably be the first area. I don't know where it came from, and I've I've heard it quite a few times, but something like on a on a um, job description, men will need confidence in like thirty percent, whereas women would need confidence that they can hit eighty percent or something like that, which instantly kind of rules a lot of women out because they don't feel like they're they're up to the job. Unlike men who'll just chuck the name in the hat because they, you know, it's it's you know it sounds cool. Um, so I suppose that that feeds into exactly what you say in there. Exactly, and I, I've read that too. There's a there's a great book um, called Lean In, and it explains a lot of that. That um, women, exactly as you say, they feel like they need to meet 100% of the criteria just to apply for a job. And I think if you meet 100% of the criteria for any job, regardless of if you're a man or a woman, then you're probably overqualified for it. I always think you should just apply for a job that's just a bit out of your reach. Look, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I should, te- should have technically been given this job um, because it was certainly, you know, just out of my skill set. But I've learned a lot and I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job now. Um, but that's something I think maybe men would have been more inclined to apply for than, than women in that case. Nice. Right. Let's dive into recovery. So we've, we've, I've published quite a, well, we've published quite a, a few articles recently on recovery on, on Sportsmith and it's always about the gadgets. It's always about the, you know, compression garments or pneumatic recovery stuff. It's, it's always about the gadgets, but when it comes to recovery, what's your kind of general, general philosophy? So I think it's changed a lot. Initially when I was talking about how I used to design, you know, fake research studies. I was really big into cold water immersion. And I just thought, okay, you know, all we need to do is prevent the downstream effects of the inflammation and so on. And all we need is cold water immersion. And then um, when I was at the AIS, I was lucky enough to, to sort of piggyback off the off someone else's PhD, uh, looking at recovery and different water immersion strategies uh, chronically and acutely. 
and um, we found that that cold water immersion is probably not as as great as we think and actually hot water immersion immersion might have superior benefits obviously dependent on the person and the context from gaining experience over the last however many years and and seeing recovery done in many different contexts i what i've gone back to essentially is really the basics so i think number one which comes before sleep and nutrition is actually what does your training program look like because if you're overloading the the players whether it's too much game time in say basketball or so on where they're playing you know every second night uh, or if it's in football where they're they're playing and they're playing 80 minutes and there's contacts and so on and then you've got them training two days later and so on then i think there's not much recovery that you could do that would negate those effects so i'd say that's number one making sure you have a well-formed training program after that definitely i think sleep and nutrition are the, the main ones so yes there are a lot of um gadgets and so on and, and all these little one percenters but i believe you need to get the 90 percenters right first before you can start adding all that on and i'm not saying that they're not useful absolutely not and i think it's easy enough it's easier said than done with the the sleep and nutrition but actually getting the athlete to do that, to eat the right thing, to, to stay in bed for a certain amount of time or to get to bed at a certain amount of time, at, at a certain time, um, that's a whole different thing. So however you go about that, whether it's information sessions, but a lot of times it's a, it's a behavior change aspect. Um, so once you get that down, then I believe you can start to, to put in those extra, those additional modalities interesting thing that you said there was it's a, it's a behavior change and i think that probably frames it slightly differently for me from the traditional like sports scientist put something in place get athletes to do it get get a result when you say behavior change that oh okay that's like a psychological aspect there's a, there's a social aspect there's this bigger kind of thing to to think about than just okay what's the best gadget what does the research say it becomes bigger than that doesn't it absolutely i've actually you know initially i started reading so much about sports science and so on and it's all about systems thinking and then i actually started reading a lot more about behavioral economics and um, there's quite a few good books on that and there's one called nudge which is quite good as well and i started to base a lot of uh, things that I implement around that. So whether it's it's the, the food buffet that we put on for the players, I'm strategically placing items um, that are like in their line of view that are healthier. And then I put the, the less healthy stuff all the way at the end. Um, not that we're providing athletes with ridiculously unhealthy food, but, you know, and then even how is your whole training room set up? Whether that's the gym, does it flow from the, the locker rooms into the physio space so they do get seen by the physio no matter what and then into the gym and so on or then onto the pitch or the court. Um, so there's all these little changes you can make uh, to actually make sure you get the desired outcome. I, I always say does, does the input match the output and um, by output I mean like so you could get an intern to make 20 protein shakes for the players to have after a game. And that's all well and good, but did they actually drink them? And I think that that's the key there. So did the protein, did the players have their, you know, whether it's 25 or 40 grams of protein post game, that's the important thing. And that's the outcome that we're looking for. It's not just, did we make the protein shakes for the players? So I think there's a huge um, element of this, this environmental design that you can put into your practice, which I've put a lot into my practice to make sure that we actually get to that desired outcome. So is there anything that you've done specifically for recovery on that behavior change side of things to get the outcomes that you wanted? I think in a way, yes. So especially in basketball, uh, simply just rather than asking players to, to bring their um, compression tights to wear on the flight, and you've got to think in basketball, that's probably where 
you do start to think about those 10 percenters in in the sense that cold water immersion becomes valuable massage becomes very valuable wearing skins on plans becomes valuable and that's because you're essentially just play recover play recover and you know we might be playing in in la and then we've got to get on a flight immediately post game which is probably you know one of the first things you can do for recovery especially when you're playing less than 48 hours later so we do look at those well, we did look at those immediate interventions and so for example um, to answer your question putting the compression tights um, on their bench right on top of their clothes or actually going up to them immediately post game and saying you know do you want tights and making sure as soon as they get out of the shower that they actually put them on rather than just asking them to bring them because chances are they're probably not going to bring them um, it's a little bit trickier in terms of um, Unless you were part of building the facility, it's a little bit trickier when it comes to um, organizing the flow of everything and where the, the ice bars are located and so on. But um, then also, you know, like I was saying about the protein shakes and making sure they're actually drunk. So again, putting them directly in the player's locker where they're going to sit down or maybe right next to their phone or so on. Interesting. Was there anything culturally in the US? that was different from a recovery standpoint and getting athletes to do what you would feel is the most effective for them versus in Australia and the players that you work with and be sport wise as well. Yeah. So I can't, I can't speak for the whole U S and I can't speak for, of course, every other of course. NBA, NBA. <laughs> I can only speak from my experience at, at that one team at that one time. Um, but there were a couple of differences. So in Australia, I feel like we've, um, probably started well in from what I've seen started to favor heat a little bit more that's because of the the benefits we do get from heat and whether that's a physiological adaptation or the recovery benefits as well so whereas in the US or where I was that there definitely wasn't that emphasis there at all we had a sauna and I don't think anyone really ever used it and which is a real shame because I think you can get a lot of benefits from sauna and obviously that's always context specific. And then the other one was, um, you know, in many sports in Australia, uh, especially in the football codes that I've worked in, it's a lot more of you just tell the players to do something. And, and you know, the classic SNC coach stands there as all the, the players are in the cold water, um, in the ice bath, sorry, and standing there with a stopwatch and saying, you know, four more minutes or, or whatnot, whereas that would never ever happen in in basketball you, you, you want to tell a 50 million dollar player to go stand in a freezing cold um, bath for 15 minutes like no you have to you have to build that rapport and that trust first and they have to understand why does this benefit them and why should they do it um, before they're going to go into can go and jump in the ice bath would there be any times or has there been any times when you have directed things towards the gadgets for whatever reason would you ever do that as a as a technique to get that like you said that buy-in into certain recovery methods or not yeah if i think i understand your question correctly um definitely like i think there's value in normatech boots for example and I, I remember maybe i was a little bit overzealous when i first got to the sixes and i thought oh you know there's this huge scope for for like considering recovery is so important there because you are playing every 48 hours and you are on a plane and you're not moving for hours at a time and you're getting to bed late and um, not sleeping that much at all even if you're getting to bed late because you're still up the next morning like you were training every day and um, in, in a sense and um, so I thought okay let's let's bring the Normatec boots on the plane and get the players to wear them on the plane like why aren't we doing this you know we have the resources we've got our own plane uh you know it's all first class seats there's plenty of room but then i think which is important in any in any context whenever you go into a new environment you've got to speak to the people that have already been there and say hey what have you tried and what has worked in the past and what hasn't and so just speaking to people there you know there's a person i work there he has been working there for, I think, 30 years. And he said, look, 
the players like on the plane that's their time that's their time for themselves they just like to hang with the other players play cards maybe listen to music and just have some time to themselves they don't want to be bothered with normatec boots or setting something up cables everywhere or you know staff running up to them and you know whatever it might be and um and then so understanding the value of actually just letting the players have their time and that actually might have even a better effect than them wearing the Normatec boots. But that's not to say that there isn't a place for the, for the gadgets for sure. I bet that, that kind of decision of you to speak to that person that's been there a long time or for anyone to speak to someone that's been in an organisation a long time, that can make or break a, a, a practitioner's career at a particular organisation. Because if you go in all guns blazing because you think you've got the right recovery modality or right recovery shake or right this or right that, when that's just not the done thing, that can kill you, can it? Oh, absolutely. And I I think I, I was brought in as part of change. We had a new coach who'd brought in a lot of new staff. And so as part of that change, my role was to change a lot of things and I thought that's what I was going to do initially. And then when I got there, I realized actually there has to be a period of me just observing. I've just got to sit back and and watch and see what do players naturally do? uh, What do staff naturally do? Because of course there was still a lot of staff that had been there for a long time or medium length of time. So, and what did I know about basketball? I wasn't going to come in there and tell them how things need to be done. And, you know, my experience was in rugby. It's not a rugby team. It's very different. So uh, I learned that very quickly. I had, I had experienced that before where you do have to just observe or you do have to potentially fall in line what was, with what was done before. And then slowly, slowly, once you've built that trust or you have some buy-in from whether it's the staff or the players or both, that's when you can slowly start to implement. And, and you know, maybe it's not uh hard and fast change but it's a it's a probing of the system and just seeing okay what happens if i do this because of course you have to be careful you can't make wholesale changes and potentially throw games so they do have to be they have to be slow burns essentially one big question when it comes to recovery that i always have how do you monitor the effectiveness of a particular recovery modality within a group or within individual players is that something you can do is that something you've tried to do how would you go about that yeah look it's a really good question and and i don't believe there's a a right or wrong way to do it i can only speak from what i've tried and then the information i know at the moment and and there are certainly some ways in terms of say quantitatively measuring that on on a force plate for example which some people would argue that it doesn't um, measure, you know, monitoring neuromuscular fatigue, uh, but that's okay. If you've found that uh, in your practice with the, the population that you have, that you do see effects of recovery intervention, then I'd say then go for that. But also um, I feel like there's a lot of value in just, just wellness questionnaires. So asking the player how they feel and if they have a, a good questionnaire that they, they complete, whether it's every training day or if it's every, tra- every day, you can see that trend over time about when you do manage to implement recovery modalities um, or even when they, they start to have a little bit more sleep or they've just started implementing a new protein shake or so on, you can potentially monitor that too. Let's have a little chat around the, the questionnaire, the particular questionnaire that you may run at, uh, in Perth. Is it something standard? Do you tweak anything? Do you go with like standard st- scientifically robust questions and how you go about it or do you make particular tweaks along the way so it is one that i based off uh, aaron coots's work so he's definitely big on, on in that space and i have adopted and adapted that in a few different environments i've been in and and this one after reading some research in soccer and so on seemed to to fit here so um, that's a seven-point scale. I believe we have five different areas. So there's a mood area, there's a soreness area, um, sleep quality, sleep quantity. And for us, that has worked well. I have used a five-point scale in the past, 
and and this is descriptive as well it's not just numbered one to five or one to seven um, I've always found the descriptions that have been a little bit more helpful because you know five could mean anything to someone whereas if, if a five is I've never been so sore in my life a player's not like as likely to hit that um, whereas if it just said five they might they might hit that when they're a bit sore and so I did change that to to um, actually descriptive um, terms there and I found the seven point scale was just a little bit uh, more sensitive to to change interesting and last thing on this is there anything that you've taken directly your learnings from working in basketball to working in soccer working in football oh definitely in in the sense that so we're in the a-league and um, we're the only team on the west coast and australia is quite large meaning that basically all our games are at minimum four hour flight away and in except if we're traveling to Adelaide, that's only about a three hour flight away. And we're always crossing at least three time zones. So in basketball, you're constantly traveling. So you're constantly on planes, um, you're constantly crossing time zones. And so when I got the job here, I made quite a few changes to the, the travel schedule. So things, excuse me, that hadn't previously been done. So say, for example, it's it's quite common in the football codes in Australia, or at least the ones I've worked in, where you always travel the day before the game, you play the game, stay the night, and then travel afterwards. But I suggested, because I've seen it in basketball, where players actually recover a lot better in, in their own beds, in their own homes. And for the most part, they don't sleep after games. Not They're not getting to bed, you know, 10.30, I promise you that, like if they've only finished playing the game at nine. So it actually worked a lot better where we would travel straight after games. So I suggested that where possible here, um, let's try and, and travel straight after the game. So when we play in Adelaide, for example, we'll travel back after that game, so long as it's not too late and we can get a flight out. And, um, and we did that a few weeks ago and that worked out really well. And, and that gives the players a whole day at home the next day because Unfortunately, when you fly commercial, even just a three-hour flight, that's your whole day gone just about with getting to the airport, getting on the plane, then driving home from the airport and so on. It's, it's almost the whole day gone. So there were a lot of little things I picked up in terms of that, that travel schedule, the crossing the time zones and so on, implemented a bit of um, light exposure. So looking at, okay, when can we get the, when should we get the guys up or when should we go out for a team walk or so on where we can actually expose ourselves to some evening light. And then um, also looking at the effects of, of crossing those time zones too. So we know that it's, it's easier to travel west than it is to travel east, which obviously hurts us a lot because all we do is travel east. And so, and the reason it's, it's more challenging is because you need to um, basically tell yourself and simplistically you need to tell yourself to go to sleep three hours earlier. So, you know, if your bedtime's usually 10 o'clock, now you're going to try and go to bed at seven o'clock. Well, I'm sorry, that's just not going to happen. So you need to, to do what you can around that. So I took a lot of my learnings from MBA and I'm not, I'm not saying that what we do now is perfect by any means, but there was a lot that I learned there, which I've managed to implement here, which has, has worked well so far. With staff and practitioner well-being becoming such a big thing, how do you manage it yourself, that, that travel? How, and how do you help your staff as well manage that travel? Because that's tough. Like, whether you're playing or not, going across them time zones, doing that every other week or every week, that's, that's hard on your body. Uh, absolutely. And there was something I started doing. So I think um, in... In the NBA, I believe players just need to bank sleep when they can. And especially if we're on a, a late flight, sometimes we wouldn't get back until 2.30, 3 in the morning. And some players did want to sleep. So I started bringing eye masks and earplugs and big, big packs of them that I could just hand out to all the players. But of course, I realized that the, the staff are in the same boat. You know, we would travel with, with um, almost 40 staff. 
And, you know, everyone's working just as long hours. They're on the same planes. They're traveling the same distances. So then I started bringing enough for our staff department as well. So I could hand out to them just to make sure they could bank some, some sleep as well. So I think that's one strategy. So thinking about what you're implementing with your, with your players and then how can you, you know, resource dependent, of course, but how can you extend that to the staff as well? Because if you want the best from your players, you've got to make sure your staff are able to, to bring their best to then get the best out of the players as well. And then I think the other thing is, especially when you do travel so much, and this is something that's done really well in, in basketball, but it's also, again, very resource heavy, is that uh, all staff get their own rooms, which is not very common in Australia. Um, in, again, the football codes I've worked in, you typically share a room with someone else. And I think when you do travel so much, it's really important that you have your own time, whether that's just your own space. And then I think there are schedule modifications. You know, you don't need to have meetings at six in the morning with all the staff and the players aren't up till 10. So again, in basketball, that they were really good at that, where we didn't really have to be at a meeting until about 9.30 in the morning. So everyone had time in the morning, whether they just wanted to go to the gym or just go for a walk, get a coffee, whatever they wanted to do, they always had time to themselves. So I think um, that was that was something that really, really helped and, and is a sort of sense of... Uh, in a way, is self-care for staff. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Cam and hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we dive into athlete monitoring. So external load monitoring, internal load monitoring, how we get buy-in from coaches and athletes to make sure this information that everyone's putting so much time into collecting from players to, to coaches and sports scientists, how we can actually make sure that is of best quality and how we can use it as best we can. So really interesting part two coming up with Cam. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And now back to the episode with Carmen. That's another thing to think about. Room sharing as a woman on a on a male-dominated staff, isn't it? If you don't have single rooms and you're all guys and one girl, right, another thing to another thing to sort. Well to think about. I've been lucky enough that every everywhere I've worked I've always been the only woman, so I've never had to share a room. Happy days. <laughs> yes. So, Happy days. Um, yeah, so that's never been too much of an issue for me. Yeah. Good. Right, load monitoring. 
next 20 minutes or so another thing that you're another topic that you're passionate about so it's probably gone in waves has external load monitoring over the last probably six or seven years since i've been doing the podcast it's been like something that everyone's really really interested in interested in so something that uh it's just like there like we, we kind of with it and we don't want any more information on it then it comes in again and people want more information so where do you think this particular area is going in terms of like interest in terms of kind of what's what's coming next with this kind of technology and, and what you're interested in it's a it's a really good question because yeah i've obviously gone as similar to the trends that you mentioned like i've gone in in waves as well in terms of like oh this is this is the thing this is what everyone needs to look at it's all about how much distance we cover above a percentage of v max or something and then um i've realized that gps or, or monitoring load is probably a better tool for just prescribing than it is for um describing what what happened i think typically if you've been in a program long enough and or if you've run drills enough times you should should know or should maybe you tell, you've built a predictor that you can actually you'll know what you're going to get from that session um so i don't think it's it's definitely still used for that of course it's definitely still a monitoring tool um there is a lot of value from load monitoring, of course, and I still use it a lot, especially when um, you look at different positional groups and what they typically get and what they would get in a game and, and are you trying to match that in a training session, whether you are looking at some sort of aspect of game speed, however you want to interpret that, and you want to match those demands or potentially want less or you know super maximal um, in that training session. So I think it's really valuable in that sense. Where I think it could be improved is, um, again, the accuracy, which, which I think, you know, all companies are consistently trying to do this. Um, but I also think that there is a really good company called uh, Sportlight, which is quite a new, co- new company. And uh, they, similar to, to Second Spectrum and Track App and stuff, they're, but they're actually using LiDAR rather than just cameras. Um, so it's it's self-driving car technology and uh, uses facial recognition as well to track the players on the pitch, which overcomes the main hurdle of players not actually having to wear a GPS sensor, which is has a lot of constraints in itself because uh, if you think of a, a, a contact sport where they've got to be wearing this quite chunky unit, although they are getting smaller, of course, um, they still do have um, a unit in between their shoulder blades. And when you've got players going into tackles and so on, that could prove problematic. Of course, there's the the technical errors around that where, you know, you could uh, forget to charge it or potentially the unit doesn't turn on or so there is an error in that or perhaps um, a player forgets to pick it up and put it on or, or someone forgets to hand it to them. So I think um, with companies coming in such as Sportlight that are um, overcoming some of those limitations and from what they say in the white papers they published are improving that accuracy, I think that will help a lot in terms of um, it will overcome the, the limitations of players actually having to wear units. And so say for in basketball, for example, um, they use LPS and they can only use the LPS in the training facility. So a uh, huge limitation there is that you have one system that you travel with that collects data one way. You have one system that you use in your your um, training facility. And then during games, they use second spectrum because, of course, the players actually aren't allowed to wear units at all. They aren't allowed to wear any wearables during games. So when companies do come in and, and create a system um, that overcomes a lot of these limitations and can be used across all those um, uh, in all those contexts, then um, it improves that validity as well. And I think that that's probably an area that still could be improved. So, have you used Spotlight anywhere? Or you've just spoke to the guys there, and so I was, yeah. So I vetted them when I was at the Seventy Sixes. 
because we were looking for a better solution just because of those limitations that I, that I mentioned because, of course, it's really hard to, to, to replicate game demands when we actually don't know what the game demands are. Of course, they give us the metrics, but we know that the metrics collected in games are just com they're likely completely different. We don't even know what the coefficient of variation is there. So um, I'd heard about them and they started developing a prototype for us, which as far as I know, they still are developing for them and will be rolling out at some point in the next um, six months, I believe. And uh, yeah, so I did have a little bit to do with them and I, I did a, a short article for them as well, but I have no you know, vested interest in them whatsoever. <laughs> Unfortunately, you don't have any vested interest because it looks like they're exactly. looks like they're doing all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could making some cash. Um, Cameron, so so are there, is it is it cameras? Is lidar? Forget, forgive my ignorance. Is it cameras? Is it um, beacons? So it's it's one system. So you can have two i believe set up but it's one system it sort of looks like a tripod with a camera looking thing on it but i believe lidar stands for something to do with a radar or something um i don't know the technical details around it but yeah it is just one system and you can roll that around with you and bring it with you um, as far as i know they're using it in the the epl and they um have just put it into all the the stadiums there now too i believe so i've heard the same thing so when it comes to internal monitoring, internal load monitoring, I mean, we've, we've touched on a little bit about the subjectives and that's where this kind of plays in, into, um, into it as well. But what kind of internal measures have you gravitated towards? We had Sean McLaren, Dr. Sean McLaren, I should say, um, on, the, on the podcast a few weeks ago, talking very much in depth about RPEs. And I caveated some, some of the certain things that he was saying with anecdotes from guests that had on the podcast previously who'd been RPEs for various different reasons so what's your thoughts on internal load monitoring and, and subjectives when it comes to that as well I think uh, there's obviously quite a few different ones whether it's uh, RPE you could look at heart rate variability I did mention uh, looking at some counter movement jump testing and then of course the wellness questionnaire and I'm sure there's, there's plenty of others um, I think Number one, like what suits your context at the at that time, the best would be the first thing because heart rate variability is all well and good, but are your athletes actually going to do that? You know, in the morning, first five minutes, or you know, whether they're sitting on the toilet or whichever the the um the the valid way to the reliable way to do it is. Um, so first, making sure that like, is it something that the the athletes can do consistently? So you're getting consistent, reliable data there. Um, what I do like is, of course, the, the wellness questionnaire. We always use jump monitoring, so on a game day plus three. Um, I know a lot of people use game day plus two, but I always find that game day plus two, the boys are really stiff and, and sore, and we don't do much on those days anyway. So what's, what's important to me is um, how recovered are they uh, come our next actual, actual training session or proper training session. So that's why I use the game day, day plus three. And I don't just look at modified RSI, I look at a couple of other metrics as well, whether it's uh, takeoff velocity or um, so on. But I do think there is a lot of value in RPE. I, I've used RPE as an example with the, with the coaches just to express to them, you know, okay, yeah, maybe we only did 3K on the field, but we were out there for two and a half hours. And if that's the day before a game, that's a lot of time on feet and that's a lot of potential fatigue or cognitive fatigue at least. So what I did was said, okay, you can be out here for maximum two hours, but you can't get more than this many arbitrary units of load. And so basically, which means that the, the session couldn't go for more than 60 minutes and they couldn't rate it more than a, than a three essentially. So, and that, that really helped to, to show the coaches that, um, you know, this is actually what it looks like to the athlete rather than just what the numbers say um, from what they actually did. And um, so I found that really useful in terms of, well, I know it's not necessarily how, well, it is in a sense how the athlete responded to the load, but it's not 
it doesn't show the intensity of it, but it does show, I guess, that overall load, which is the purpose of it. Have you ever looked at what the coach may perceive as been the RPE for that day versus what the athletes have actually said? It's kind of what you said anyway, but like rate it, the coach's rating? Yeah, I think um, I have, not in my pre, not in my current role, but I have in, in previous roles um, where they had predicted RPEs for the day and what they would actually look that, like that to look like. And it actually helps if you can add that into your, your periodized model as well and say, okay, well, that's what you plan for that session. So then how long do you want to be out for? Well, uh, out in the pitch for, because that would equate to this many units. And if we look at that over the week, does it have a nice variation within the week? Is it not too many arbitrary units? But then, I mean, also to go on a bit of a tangent here, like say if you're, if you're looking at this over a preseason, that should change. So, RPE should actually stay the same as load goes up, as the players get fitter. So, you know, there is a difference there as well because a, a, a training session rated at a nine at the start of preseason would be very different to a training session rated nine at the end of preseason. You'd hope anyway, because you'd hope the players would be fitter by then. Interesting. Interesting. So in terms of this, this load monitoring, whether it be external or internal, what have your tactics and techniques been to get buy-in from athletes maybe it's an mba thing because of the the things that you spoke about maybe it's a in your current role what are the tactics and techniques you've used to get buy-in and interest real deep interest from athletes and coaches so i think yeah it's definitely more of an nba thing where there's less of the hey you've got to wear this just because um and you do need to um convince the athlete, let's say convince uh, the athlete that they need to wear a, a device. And in the NBA, it's particularly challenging because a lot of players tend to think that any data collected on them is going to be used uh, to get them traded. So what you need to do is, of course, develop that trust first, but then also show them. I found it really helpful in, in showing the players, well, this is what we actually do with the data. And so because we saw that you did this, we actually pulled you back here or you did this in a game. And because you did this in a game, you didn't do nearly as much as you usually would. So X, Y, Z, or you did this in a game and therefore that's why you need to do this recovery strategy. Um, and then another one was getting players to jump on the force plates. Like we had three different types of force plates at the 76ers. And when I got there, none of them were being used. So, and uh, so my challenge to myself was, okay, how do we get at least, you know, 10 of these players jumping on the force plates regularly? And um, by the end, we had just about everyone jumping on the force plates and showing them like, this is why we do it. And this was every second day that they'd be jumping on the force plates. And look, that, that might be overkill for some people, but if you do it specifically on a, on a game day and it's consistent across that, you can you can see some good trends over time. But then I guess to answer your question, the key was to then actually show what you then did with that data and whether that was showing that, hey, is, this is the, the result of the intervention that we put in a few weeks ago, whether that was a training intervention or so on. Um, but once we, we showed them, it was easy after that one question for you is load monitoring and general monitoring data used for trading decisions in the nba or is that just a perception from the player they're concerned about uh what what do you mean specifically so that jump the, the jump data for example would that go any further than, than your laptop and you know a coach or physios does that go up higher like is there is there a general concern from the player that the data that they use that data that they generate on the force plate is that concern real that it's going to be used in a trading decision yeah i mean in a not not that i ever saw not that i ever okay. saw and our data was i mean of course front office could access any of the data if they wanted it but uh not that I saw. It was pretty, yeah, that, that wasn't necessarily something they were interested in. They're a lot more interested in um, KPIs and there's that whole money ball around basketball. So that's essentially how all the trains would happen. It wouldn't 
wouldn't really be related to what they did on their, their jump two days ago. <laughs> okay. No, that's fine. That's fine. Well, Carmen, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. And that's probably a, a good place to uh, to round it up. Do you have social media, Carmen? Is there anywhere people can keep up to date what you've got going on? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm very poor at Twitter. Uh, I'm on it all the time, but I'll, I'll seldom post anything. In the shadows. Uh, but, <laughs> in the shadows. <laughs> I, look, I, I find there's a lot of value in Twitter, really good for sports scientists to keep their finger on the pulse. Anyone who's you know, researching anything and publishes a paper, they'll typically post it there. So I, I love seeing what people post there, but maybe I just don't uh, publish enough or do anything exciting enough to, to post that often. But yes, I am on, on Twitter. It's Carmen Colomer one is my Twitter handle. So if anyone wants to check me out there. Perfect. And looking at your LinkedIn based on the last few years, there's definitely some interesting stuff that you've been doing. Get it on Twitter. Get it on <laughs> <laughs> all right all right Rob I'll do nah. that for you <laughs> nah I'm only joking now Carmen thank you very much for your time I really appreciate it good luck um in the newish role that you've uh, you've got back home and I uh, look forward to keeping in touch yeah I really appreciate you having me on too and uh yeah thanks so much for your time too Rob thanks Carmen speak soon thanks bye Tune in to episode 428 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Carmen for giving up her time and scheduling this on very short notice and then putting up with me sounding like this for the whole hour that we spoke. And big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Play, Kitman Labs, Rewire Fitness and Hytro for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Hope you have a fantastic Christmas and New Year and look forward to speaking to you in early 2023.